So where do we start? I mean, again, I don't know what happened this week or last week or the week before, so I think we might just have to skip right to the interview. Okay, so Donald Trump. Wow, you're a- you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna engage in the sarcasm, David. I apologize for my decision <laughs> to go straight through that. Uh, but yeah, Donald Trump was elected as the as the president elect of the United States. Um, not a lot to say about that. Nope. But I don't know. I think I, I kind of want to talk a little bit before we start the show about the rapidly changing political landscape of the Jewish community in the United States right now. Yeah, Jewish liberals, the Jewish left, Jewish institutions. It's been a whirlwind of the last three weeks. Um, but there's just a couple of developments that because we haven't had the show in a couple of weeks, I haven't really had an outlet to talk to anyone about because most people in my daily life don't want to hear me talk about the nuances of Jewish politics in the United States. That's why we're here. I assume that you have this in list form. Yeah, I put some things on a little piece of paper, but are, are there things that you wanted to talk about? Okay, so off the jump, there's a small part of me that is excited about the mobilization. For folks who don't know, Jewish Twitter and kind of the Jewish left internet has definitely focused on this resistance piece, on opposing Trump. It's been really heartening to see liberal organizations take a fairly strong stand in a way that they don't normally take a strong stand. But the pessimist in me is concerned that some of this energy is misplaced and also has too much faith in liberal institutions. I definitely agree with where you're going with this. But I mean, the thing maybe we should tell people, because I feel like there are people who don't engage with the Jewish media world that we're really entrenched in and listen to the show as their conduit to engage. So Very smart decision on their part. Yeah. So for those people, most Jewish institutional groups actually were either silent or very supportive of Donald Trump after the election. Only I think it was only the Anti-Defamation League who's been in a gradual process of pivoting to become a more liberal group since their last leader left. Boy, oh boy, isn't that interesting. Um, yeah, we can talk about that. They're the only <laughs> ones that spoke up. Uh, the Zionist Organization of America attacked them, saying they should apologize for calling this guy Steve Bannon, who Donald Trump appointed as an advisor, saying that he was anti-Semitic. They should apologize for that. Can we do like a Haman Grogger when, when you say Steve Bannon? Well, this is the thing that I want to talk about, is that I feel like the strategy of groups like If Not Now and all these other groups that are yeah. mobilizing of targeting this man in particular, the messaging right now is fire him. Get rid yeah. of this guy. Ban Bannon. It works as like a linguistic play. Totally. Yeah. And I understand it's an easy thing to mobilize about. Yeah. Things are moving really fast. But it seems like Trump's appointed a whole bunch of people that are also white supremacist. Yeah. And for us as leftist Jews to only be targeting this one person who's also anti-Semitic and letting all these other people... Yeah. You know, it's like it's like Trump's a white supremacist. The entire cabinet's going to be white supremacist. There's structural white supremacy. Like, I, I think I'm just very suspicious of what it means for long-term mobilization to be targeting like an individual in this yeah i mean i get what you're saying but to give some of these groups the benefit of the doubt focusing on an individual if done in a proper context and if done with like long-term vision in mind of other targets and and broader ideas i think is a kind of tactical decision yeah it definitely can be but i think my feelings more generally here is my worry about the jewish left like the radical left being co-opted by Mm. a newly mobilized Mm. liberal American Jewry? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll lose some people, but ultimately, I think the groups and institutions that we've created are probably not going anywhere. Um, What else is on your your small list over there? Um, What else is here? Oh, there's also this thing where I feel... Okay, so so the other thing I want to talk about is that I feel like there is... uh, And this is not for people on the other side of the border. This is for people uh, up here in the series of territories currently governed by the Canadian government. 
where I feel like there's this thing happening where with all of this rhetoric coming from, you know, liberal media institutions from the United States talking about Trump being a fascist. With this kind of messaging, I feel like what it does is it erases our context here and it erase, erases context of structural white supremacy and structural racism and, mm-hmm. and colonialism. Or, or just like this this fantasy narrative about Canada being such a great liberal haven. Yeah, this definitely does wonders for that narrative. Like in Montreal, occupied Teotihuacan, in the last week, there was the, or maybe two weeks now, there was the revelations about the Montreal police spying on journalists, the mayor preventing any investigation. There was the provincial police being let off for sexual assault of very many Indigenous women. There is the RCMP Project Sitka document became public about how they're monitoring Indigenous activists across the country. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no shortage of instances of violent white supremacy in Canada. Although, on the moving to Canada front... Go watch Hari Kondabolu's skit on moving to Canada on YouTube.com. Yeah, or if you're moving to Quebec, don't expect to get on welfare because they just cut $50 million the other week from the welfare system here. Uh, 25% of healthcare was cut recently. <laughs> okay, so we need to we need to lighten things up before we start the episode. Well, yeah, things are bleak, but I think that the positive silver lining is that 70% of American Jews voted for Trump while the institutional Jewish community has supported him. So all of a sudden, everyone's like, what do we do? Maybe this is the first step toward them, you know? Do you just reference a tweet that you made? Oh, maybe. <laughs> you certainly did. Oh, I don't know. I only started, for the <laughs> listeners, until very recently, Sam was the only person on the tray of Twitter, and I've sort of figured it out recently. Um, so yeah, am I not allowed to say things I said on Twitter? No, I think it's just funny. Do you have any other funny uplifting positive stories oh let me think hold on i saw a video on youtube of a polar bear petting a dog a husky no but sam that polar bear killed that dog i don't believe you oh let's look it up right now no no no, don't don't no no no. don't ruin this very good video it's not the polar bear <laughs> it's no fault. one's fault they're animals like, but yeah, like it wasn't a sanctuary anyway so i i would like to apologize in advance to our guest today for uh, bookending our great interview with her with <laughs> this complete nonsense <laughs> You got to bring some light into the dark conversations. We were fortunate enough to talk with Aurora Levins Morales. And for those who don't know, she's a prolific activist, artist, writer, and journalist, all around incredible human. Yeah, I mean, she was one of the contributors to This Bridge Call My Back. It was a little intimidating to talk to her on the radio, to be honest. Um, she's been heavily involved with radio. Like we were talking to Sandy Fox on a previous episode who started Fibertite, the Yiddish feminist podcast. She was talking about being inspired by feminist radio collectives of the 1970s. And Aurora was actually very involved with these feminist radio collectives when she was in high school. You know, she's part of the Third World News Bureau in East Oakland. And it was really exciting to have a conversation with someone who has so much experience and knowledge and insight. Yeah, Aurora is actually one of the first people that when we started the show, I, I had in mind to try to get on the show. So it was very exciting to, to finally speak with her. So this is your episode of Trafe for the first of Kislev 5777. My name is Aurora Levens Morales. I am a sixth generation radical on the Jewish side of my family. There's radicals on the Puerto Rican side, but not in the straight sixth generation lineage. 
I was born in Puerto Rico, the child of blacklisted communists. I grew up on a farm in the remote part of the island during the McCarthy years. I was born in 1954, a week before Puerto Rican nationalists shot up the U.S. Congress. So I was born into a moment of political repression when leftists were being rounded up. In fact, my father was arrested when I was three weeks old. And I'm 62 now, so I've been part of lots of different movements and organizations and written about a lot of different things for a lot of years. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. A pleasure. I really appreciate the sense of history you brought to your intro. And I think right now, a lot of young people are really struggling to put Trump's victory into an historical context. And I'm just I'm just sort of wondering, mm-hmm. just to start off, like, how does this feel to you right now? Like, is this similar to the Reagan years? Is it the McCarthy years? Like, what, what frame of reference does it bring up for you? Well, I don't actually think it's that useful to compare different historical periods. Each of them bring unique challenges. But certainly having lived through particularly the McCarthy period, I do know that times of political repression are survivable and they require different strategies and they're not the end of the world. I'm thinking a lot about this moment in global terms. I'm thinking about the fact that we're at an ecological tipping point and that the extractive capitalist world economy is facing a crisis because it turns out that greed does have consequences and that you can't use everything up without running out of it. And the climate change crisis that we're in is evidence that capitalism isn't sustainable. And so, you know, we're seeing in the course of that struggle both the emergence of really progressive governments, especially in Latin America, and the emergence of extreme right-wing governments, a lot of far-right parties coming into more power in Europe, the backlash and counter-revolution in Latin America. So I'm seeing Trump in the context of that larger moment in history where a lot of different things are coming to head and both creative, innovative, positive proposals and really horrible ones being pushed simultaneously. I think that it's actually not a time to leap frantically into action. I think it's a time to sit with people we trust and think and take some time to evaluate what's changed and what hasn't. So I'm spending a lot of my time being an elder and calming people. I know that's kind of how you framed your last answer. And I know that prior to our conversation, you mentioned that you don't really focus too much on the mainstream news. But what have some of your reflections been in the wake of this on that question of how it's changed and how it hasn't? I, you know, I, I did have the sense of shock that most people did, and it certainly triggered childhood fears of people coming and taking me away in the middle of the night. And I'm somebody who spent my 20s doing solidarity work with people in Chile and Uruguay and Argentina, where folks were being disappeared all the time. I, those things are frightening, but at the same time, I don't feel panic-stricken, and I don't feel like it's the end of the world. I mean, on the one hand, there's obviously going to be real impact on real people's lives. There are going to be a whole lot of rollbacks of victories that we've won in terms of policy and resources and civil liberties. So it's going to make the conditions of political work more challenging. And the communities most directly and immediately impacted are also the ones with the most expertise in dealing with ongoing repression. And there are some... Some people, I I keep hearing about 
older black women saying, yeah, it was like this yesterday and it's going to be like this tomorrow. Like, welcome to our country. People in the Standing Rock saying, you know, they've been trying to kill us for 500 years. It's not actually that different. That the degree to which people are in shock is partly related to how much illusion of safety they already were carrying and that people who are struggling with repression of all kinds on a regular basis, you know, are simultaneously the ones who are most vulnerable to the escalation, but are also people who've been struggling with this stuff their whole lives. One, one positive change is that right now there seems to be this really heightened tension following the election between the institutional Jewish leadership in the U.S. and American Jews. I, I know you've never had much relationship with these institutional Jewish organizations. I'm wondering if you want to talk a bit about why that is. Sure. I mean, I, I feel like this is a crisis that's been brewing for a while as Jewish institutions have become many of them more and more outrageous in the level of unconditional support for Israeli policies and the silencing of dissent, particularly after the summer 2014 assault on Gaza. It's become more difficult for many, many Jewish people in the United States to go along with that. But um, I grew up in a radical family and I grew up in an occupied colonial territory in Puerto Rico. And so I always I grew up in a family that's against colonization, that's against settler colonial states, that's against the kinds of inequalities and abuses of human rights and dispossession that have been going on in Israel-Palestine since its inception. And so I grew up with a sense of solidarity with Palestinian people that was both from the conversations adults were having around me and also just a visceral, you know, I have a, a, a poem that I wrote that has a line in it that says, I am a colonial subject with a stone in my hand when I listen to the news. That I know what I'm looking at when I see soldiers attacking kids who have stones in their hands. It's the same thing I see all over Latin America. So my identification with Palestinian liberation is really very deeply tied into my identity as a Puerto Rican Jew and as a radical. It's just not ever something that's been a conflict for me. And so coming into Jewish institutions, I didn't grow up around Jewish institutions. I grew up in, on a coffee farm in western Puerto Rico. But in the United States, starting to have contact with those institutions, it was really shocking to me initially, having never really known Jews who were not radical, to discover that there were people who had you know, either left or liberal politics on every issue except Israel-Palestine and could create this big exception to principles of justice when it came to that. So I never felt at home in places where the assumed core of Jewish identity was an identification with Israel. And then as a Jew of color, you know, Ashkenazi Jews in the United States went through a process of identifying with whiteness and accepting white privilege as a hedge against anti-Semitism and as part of the process of upward mobility and a separation and breaking up of alliances with people of color. And so Ashkenazi-dominated organizations in the U.S. tend to be very white-identified and really completely oblivious to the existence of Jews of color of any stripe, and there are many different kinds of Jews of color, but, 
you know, people like myself who are mixed heritage, I'm constantly being asked, well, what, you know, which are you really? Are you more Puerto Rican or more Jewish as if those are inherently contradictory? Or seeing Latin American Jews as somehow more exotic than Jews in the United States, even though for my relatives who left a tiny village in Ukraine, some of them went to Argentina, some of them went to New York, those places were equally exotic to them. So the racism that's central to that identification with whiteness for white Ashkenazi U.S. Jews, because there are Ashkenazi Jews like myself who are Jews of color, for white Ashkenazi U.S. Jews has made a lot of the institutions not places that I'm visible, not places where I'm acknowledged and understood. So, you know, the degree to which there's a commitment to tackle racism is the degree to which I feel comfortable in Jewish spaces. So this kind of ties into why we actually got in touch with you in September in the first place, because you had co-written a piece in response to the institutional Jewish community's general condemnation of the Black Lives Matter platform. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that piece and, and what led to its inception? Anger. <laughs> I thought that the platform for Black Lives was the most inspiring historically significant documents that I had ever read. I was so excited. And on the basis of a single line that talks about what is happening to Palestinian people as genocide, a whole bunch of Jewish institutions completely walked away from the most significant racial justice document, certainly in the last 50 years, maybe ever in this country. It just really made me angry. And I wanted it to be really clear that there are Jews who embrace that document entirely and that Jews of color have a deep investment in that document. The racism that was inherent in the tone of reprimand coming from those organizations was also infuriating. And it was like, you have let us down. You need to fix that if you want us to support you. That's not how solidarity works. Even if it had been a legitimate criticism, which it isn't, you know, African-American radicals get to name the realities they see in the world any way they want. And for white Jewish organizations to be trying to dictate terms and say, we're only going to engage in being your allies around racism if you do what we say and describe Israel-Palestine in the terms that we want you to is inherently racist. So, yeah, I was pretty outraged. The, the piece that we're talking about is actually co-written with two other people, both who are part of uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering, just because, you know, we were talking before about the relationship you've had with different Jewish organizations over time being fairly fraught. Have there been other Jewish organizations that you've had affiliations with before you got involved with Jewish Voice for Peace? Yeah, I was part of New Jewish Agenda back in the day. And that was exciting and great be with other Jews who were critical in engaging with Israel-Palestine politics. I think this is the first person we've had on the show who has been a part of this group. Could you talk a little bit about it? (laughs) Okay, here's where we come up against the fact that I've had six head injuries and a stroke. And so my memory for those kinds of details is really pretty bad. I remember that it was really heartening to be in rooms full of Jews trying to grapple with this when institutional Jewish life was so much not. I, I remember responding to the Sabra and Shatila massacres, doing 
public events that included poetry and art that I was part of creating and just how heartening it was to have a different voice in a different political space. That's really what I remember most. A lot of the conflicts and things that eventually broke the organization apart, I was not that involved with. I just remember that it was great to have community and to be thinking about those issues with other radical Jews, which is something that I had not had. And then when Jewish Voice for Peace was founded, I got involved pretty early on and was part of the advisory board from very early when it was still a very small, mostly local organization. I guess just thinking about the legacy of those kinds of conversations Mm -hmm. uh, in in the statement that you wrote, something that I think separated it from, you know, the few Jewish groups that also supported was that it framed the oppression of Palestinians as not just a racial justice issue, but as central to any conversation about racial justice in Jewish communities. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you get the sense that this conversation is happening. Well, it's happening wherever I go. (laughs) You know, for the Jews of Color Caucus has just been such a wonderful political home for me. Um, There's so much I don't have to explain in those rooms. But, you know, for us, our relationship to Palestine solidarity is different because, speaking for myself, I am also targeted by Zionism. I am targeted by Jewish nationalism. I am targeted by the... Ashkenazi-centric, racialized, colonial construction of Jewish identity as a Jew of color. So my relationship to Palestinians is from the position of part of the oppressor group, but also targeted by the same oppression. So it's a different relationship that I have to, to that struggle. And, you know, ultimately, solidarity with Palestine by U.S. Jews isn't going to be successful unless it's completely grappling with the racism and colonialism of the entire setup and really challenging what Jewish identity is built on in the United States. It's not something that can be set aside. So just relating to what we were talking about earlier about Jewish spaces and Jewish community, I feel like I know a lot of leftist Jews, I guess we're millennials now, who look to your writing <laughs> and, and your work, myself included, you know, as part of grounding ourselves in, in a specific leftist Jewish history and community and tradition. You know, like I know that Jews for Racial and Economic Justice were able to have you as, I think they called it an elder in residence uh, to mentor. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, like you're, you're actually mentoring activists there is my understanding, right? Well, I was helping to develop some important work that is going to start becoming public soon, but that is about crafting a left analysis of anti-Semitism and really understanding what its function is in our society. There's a tremendous amount of confusion because the right has really had a monopoly on talking about anti-Semitism and the accusations of anti-Semitism that are leveled on any criticism of Israel. And so there's a tremendous amount of confusion about what it is and what it isn't. So partly it's been developing that work with them, but yeah, also helping to ask big questions and pose challenges and make connections and bring historical perspective to the kinds of work that they're developing in an ongoing way. And also to get to interact with the Jews of color and the Mizrahi caucuses of Jayfridge, which has been deeply rewarding and a wonderful learning experience for me. And I love being in that kind of relationship with younger activists. 
Yeah, I think that was kind of where I was going with this. I was wondering what you think of us seeing you this way. Like, do you see yourself as carrying this torch from a different generation of Jewish radicals? Um, probably not the metaphor I would use, but I definitely am from a long lineage. My father would talk about the three-sided debate that would happen in the village back in Ukraine between the Orthodox Jews who said God will handle anti-Semitism if we're good, um, it's in God's hands, it's nothing for us to do, and the Zionists who saw territory and national identity and Jews fighting only for Jews as the solution, and then the socialists and communists and anarchists who were saying we are part of an alliance of oppressed peoples, protecting us from anti-Semitism and dismantling anti-Semitism is to build those alliances, that that same argument got transplanted intact to the boardwalk in Brooklyn where he grew up. And, you know, in varying ways, it's still, you know, the debate between whether isolating ourselves and fighting just for us or building solidarity is the best strategy for Jewish liberation is still the argument that's happening. And, you know, post-Holocaust, it was a lot harder for some people to argue for solidarity because solidarity hadn't been enough. And there was an upsurge of, of interest in Zionism. You know, it's, it's the same ongoing debate about really how much hope we have, how much faith in other humans, how much belief in the power of solidarity. And that's at least a 150-year-long conversation among Jews. So bringing other historical moments when we've had these conversations, other moments when we've had to figure out where do we make alliances, where do we not, bringing that to this moment helps to enrich it and also in some ways depersonalize it so that we understand it as a larger historical process and not just this particular scary, upsetting moment. So our history and our collective memory is constantly under attack. Collective memory is a real threat to institutional power. And so being a historian and a storyteller and coming from a family of storytellers, I love that I can bring stories of my grandfather as an organizer of the Communist Youth League in the early part of the 20th century into conversations about what we do now. Well, I can't think of a better note to end this discussion on. Thank you again <laughs> so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's a real pleasure. If people want to follow your work, I know you have a new book coming out soon, or they just want to follow things that you're doing, how can they do that? My website is www.auroralevensmorales.com, and I have a blog there. People can sign up for my mailing list, which I would really love for people to do so that I can let y'all know about my travels and my talks and workshops and meetings in various places. And I have an audio blog on Pacifica Radio's Flashpoint program called Letters from Earth, which is a poetic prose blog about environmental justice and disability justice and health issues around the country. So you can follow that. It appears irregularly, but it's on the Flashpoint website. Yeah, and uh, we'll have both in our show notes for folks listening. This was fun. Yeah, this was this was extremely great. Like honestly, we could do this anytime. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be great.
While I was doing some research on Birthright and where they're located in New York and what their finances look like, I found out something very interesting. In 2015, Birthright received about $84 million in donations. In 2014, they had received $40 million more in donations, coming out to about $124 million. I wondered why Birthright had received so much less money in 2015 than 2014. And the only conclusion I could come to was activism, that activism had actually made a dent in donations to Sheldon Adelson's favorite pet project. And now, in the age of Trump, we have to remember that activism does work and has to work. Nishkin Tzedek, Nishkin Sholem. It's time for Shpeach. Sam, uh, you want to tell people who don't speak Yiddish what you're saying? It is a loose uh, translation of the phrase, no justice, no peace, uh-huh. and seems fairly apt for the times that we are living in. Agreed. And for the times that we were living in before. But anyways. <laughs> times we were living in last month, <laughs> times we were living in the month before that. Yeah, I agree. So, Sam. Yes, David. What is your shkoyach for this week? Oh, I'm coming in. I'm coming in with a little rant here. Uh, two anti shkoyachs. We've already ranted so much, though. Oh, it's just a week of rants. We are officially a talk radio show. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, David. We've talked about this before, but can I swear? Wait, how do you not know if you can swear? It's our show. I just feel like. We've kind of enforced a no swearing policy. You've said something about some rating on iTunes. So, I mean, like, I don't normally swear, but I just... For a while, I didn't know how to mark it as explicit, but I can now. Yeah, you can definitely swear. Great. So my first anti-shkoyach goes to a borough in Montreal. Oh, yeah. The borough of Montreal is called Outremont. Outremont is a neighborhood that is kind of connected to the Mile End Plateau, for those who are listening and have heard of the hip parts of Montreal. And for the Mile End, big Jewish history. Yes. So my, my, my grandfather and his family live there, and it is now home to a fairly large Hasidic community. Mm-hmm. The Hasids make up about 25% of the entire Outremont borough. And if you read local French language media, are growing at an alarming rate. So basically, in the last couple of years, or probably in the last 20 years, or probably even longer, because that's only the time where I've been aware of the news that's going on, but the <laughs> the fairly bourgeois francophone population in Outremont is not very happy about the Hasidic community, their perceived insularity, and the general otherness. Yeah, I, I mean, there's been a, essentially a war between the historically white Quebecois Bureau Council in Outremont and the Hasidic population. They try to use all these weird zoning bylaws, like they banned sukkahs, they did all this other weird stuff. Yeah, and then the, like when there's when there's celebrations on the street, it's always a problem, and parking laws, and there's it's honestly just an ongoing fight for people who have too much time on their hands to kind of pester the Hasidic community in Outremont. And basically this came to a head about a week and a half ago when we put out this podcast, when there was a vote uh, as to whether 
religious institutions, aka synagogues, could be built in the future in this neighborhood. And unfortunately, the community voted about 55 to 45 in favor of banning synagogues from being constructed in this neighborhood. So a big fuck you to the entire borough of Outremont and to those who voted in favor of this piece of legislation or bill or whatever language is being used. As a radical who believes in people's freedom from religion, I also believe in people's freedom to practice religion. And this is just the culmination of many years of fucked up treatment that the predominantly white, francophone, bourgeois community in Outremont has wreaked on the Hasidic community. Yeah, or even more specifically than freedom of religion, but freedom to live somewhere and not have to assimilate. That, I think, is the biggest problem that I feel like white Quebecois people have with the Hasidic population is they have no interest in learning French. They have no interest in assimilating into Quebecois society. They just want to live in their own enclaves. They want to be left alone. Yeah, and also to put this anti-non-Christian perspective into context, Muslim communities in Quebec and in Montreal face tremendous repression from the state and from activists around the city and Quebec more broadly. In another neighborhood, there's been a lot of pushback against the building of a Muslim community center. So this is part of a broader context, and I don't mean to isolate it from that. But I mean, this is the kind of show we're doing. And once again, fuck you to Outremont and humongous anti definitely co-signed. Also, like an anecdote about this referendum is that when they were scheduling the date of the referendum, they actually decided to do that on Rosh Hashanah, even though they now have a Hasidic counselor who cautioned them against doing exactly that. The entire process of this is just completely and overtly anti-Hasidic, anti-Jewish. And just to add to the, the pile of poop that this whole story is, is that apparently one of the council members mentioned that the reason this was getting so much attention is because of the Jewish relationship to the media. Massive anti-shkoyach. And once we're at it, and once I'm on my kind of a rant situation, I'd like to give another anti-shkoyach, and that goes to a group called the Zionist Organization of America. Now, not only does this group have an acronym that sounds like a weird spaceship, and I don't really understand what it's supposed to do because there are many other organizations, and it just sounds like anachronistic and a useless entity. But these wingdings invited Donald Trump's right-hand white supremacist boss-in-chief to talk at their fucking gala this weekend, okay? Huge yeah, anti-shkoyach. Also, Jonathan Katz told me that I should give him an anti-shkoyach, so <laughs> partial shkoyach to Jonathan okay, Katz on this one. I understand it's a problem that they brought that guy in, but, like, every other person there is... A hundred percent. Listen... David, I understand the kind of structural contextual analysis, but there's kind of like added salt on the wound to be inviting this particular fellow at this particular time, yeah. given the context of what's happening right yeah, now. Yeah, like I, I read that at the gala dinner that he was invited to, that there was this speech, uh, I forget who gave it, that were, were in the speech, the person talking talked about Trump's election as being a result of divine intervention and got a standing oh. ovation from the audience. Ah, oh, Bernack. I mean, listen, your point is fully taken. If if they would have invited him next June or whatever, I think it would have been different. They It seems like they invited him after Trump got elected and they're just like, Let's invite this guy and inflame tensions and then call any person who ever makes any comment about Israel anti-Semitic and invite this raging anti-Semite to speak on their stage. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, where groups like this are completely based around their hatred of Palestinians, right? Like they're based around the racism. And I think the thing that worries me is that we're also angry about this banning guy because he's also anti-Semitic in an overt way. 
But I think for the majority of Jews in the United States, hatred of Palestinians okay, but this is the step too far. And I think that's just the fact that that's the step too far is the thing that makes me a bit uncomfortable. I get your point. Like, it's the same with all this American liberal garbage about not normal. You know, we have, we can't normalize this presidency. Normal is white Jews being safe within whiteness. And it, I don't know, like a lot of these leftist Jewish groups, the way they're organizing, I feel like is riding this wave of this isn't normal sentiment. Sure. And, and it's just a matter of putting things back so that white Jews are protected and, and everybody else is attacked. Like, I just, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I don't know, it just makes me very uncomfortable. It's very warranted. The problem for me is more just how anti-Semitism is monopolized by these folks. Right. And then it's excluded when it's convenient to them. I think that's more of the sore point for me. And I fully get that this is a gathering of racists. And so for racists to take a racist position is not surprising. But it's the kind of like manipulation and use of anti-Semitism as a weapon and then complete ignorance when it's actually substantiated. I think that's the sore spot for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just revealing what the Zionist conception of anti-Semitism actually is to people who maybe didn't have that understanding before. Because it's, it's very, clearly not anti-Semitism. Yeah, it's very clear now what actually this viewpoint is if people weren't familiar before. Um, I think it's on full display. So please tell me that you have a positive square. Um, I do. I have a positive and a negative just to keep huh. things balanced for today. Okay. The positive square is the Toronto-based square goes to the organization OCAP or the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. I am familiar. For folks who aren't, go to www.google.com and type in OCAP. <laughs> like, I, I grew up in Toronto. Boo! <laughs> so, yeah. But, I mean, this is one of the great things about growing up in Toronto was actually was having an organization like OCAP, you know, Radical Left, direct action organization, existing in its prime around the same time I was, I was in my early teens. So I, I got to see them do some amazing work challenging a right-wing government, just slashing things left and right. So what's this amazing work they're doing now? So OCAP has been around for a really long time, and the kind of work they do now isn't exactly the same as the kind that they were doing when I was younger that really inspired me. But I do still find inspiration from that group. And something they did recently was that they had a screening of the new documentary they made about how the shelter system in Toronto is completely overcrowded, but they screened it outside the condo building where Mayor John Tory lives. Huh. Yeah, so they went to his house and they screened it there. And all the mainstream media kept talking about, is this too far? Have they gone too far? Which is hilarious because compared to some of the stuff they've done before, this is a joke. Mm. You know, Jim Flaherty, who was under Harper, he was a finance minister for a while. Like I know of him, yes. Before he was finance minister federally under Harper, he was in Ontario. He engineered the like Mike Harris right wing austerity regime in Ontario in the 90s. And they broke into his office and threw all of his furniture out on the lawn. Like they evicted him <laughs> because he was engineering all the evictions of all these people. Oh, wow. I mean, they, they would go into grocery stores and they would just take as much food as they could to feed people. And so they're, they're a direct action organization with, with an inspirational history. And this is just an inspiring action they did recently in sort of this new Toronto, which is a bit of a different landscape. So big time shkoyach to OCAP. So my negative shkoyach for today is also Toronto based. Well, well, well. And it goes to the city of Toronto, specifically the Toronto Police Services Board. Okay. For very recently approving a new regime that is incredibly similar to the old regime, what they call carding and what is in practice racial profiling against okay. black people in the city of Toronto. So basically this new regime were asked to kind of reconsider the old policy and basically came up with the same one. Is that the idea? 
Well, there's been a lot of organizing by Black Lives Matter around this issue, and, and there's, so there's a lot of pressure on the mayor and on, on the Toronto Police Services Board to get rid of Cardin. And so I think it's just this game of trying to like appease people who are trying to fight racism and keep doing this. So they had this meeting where they're going to reconsider this, and they told everyone a different time than when it actually was. So there wouldn't be any media there. And, and it was you know the same story as always, and, and they passed it. Not surprising, but terrible. Yeah, so you're saying, fuck the ZOA, like, fuck the Toronto Police Services Board. I can get behind that. Yeah. So that was episode 24. Yeah, thanks for bearing with us. Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Oh, yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna bite off of um, Hari and uh, Kamau's podcast and kind of do a what did you learn from this show? Um, what did I learn? I learned that we should more actively pursue intergenerational dialogue when talking about the kind of issues we like to talk about in the show. That was a very good answer, David. Thank you. What about you, Sam? <laughs> I learned that Aurora should come on the podcast as much as she wants. Um, I also learned that we should be supporting the work and organizing of groups like OCAP. I didn't really learn, but I guess to take away that the Toronto Police Service is probably not going to change, unfortunately. I think that's about it. So if you are listening to this show and you're thinking to yourself, wow, every two weeks they release an episode, that's a really long time. What I really want is a day-to-day reaction and a series of hot takes on the political things I see on the internet. You're in luck. We have a Twitter account. Uh, it's at Trafe Podcast, so you can follow us there. Certainly. That was a very funny plug for our own Twitter account. What else should we plug? We should talk about the posters. We should mention that if anyone wants a version of it, just send us an email and you could print it out where you are and put it up. What else should we mention? We should say that people should keep giving us positive reviews on iTunes. And again, if you've been to any of these left Jewish protests that are going on right now, you're doing any organizing you're really excited about, ideas you have swimming around your head you want to get out things you want to criticize me and sam for it's a long list of things it could be but if you put it in the form of a voice memo we can have it on the show so please send us voice memos 30 to 45 seconds go a little bit longer (laughs) we'll see about that yeah don't listen to sam it's between me and you anything you want i'll give you a great deal on this voice memo Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CQT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganagahaga territory. As always, a huge thanks to Kira Page for the social media consultancy, Claire Hertig, the Minister of Design, C. Lavery, who designed our new posters, Cadence O'Neill, who designed our new website, and Sax Syndrome and SoCalled for the music you heard in this episode. You can follow us on the social medias at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, SoundCloud, no Instagram. You can send us hate mail at treyfpodcast at gmail.com. Can we, can we try part of this header again? No, I think it was I think it was good. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was too like weird talk radio. No, no, no. To be honest, I think it was like it was good informal. Like I actually like it. Yeah, like you're okay. gonna like it less than me, but I think I it don't was know. Good. I never really know until after. I was just worried that like no. we weren't like really lamenting on things enough. We were just like talking we we're just like saying the things that happened, you know? No. Okay. There was lament. <laughs> <laughs>